it's the day of the Wesak celebration, so this is a time to really to feel a sense of gathering together around particular themes that, w- that we can all bear in mind. And uh, so recently I've been in, in Switzerland and also in Italy, and in both these countries, it, uh, various Wesak celebrations going on, people doing similar things, and it's kind of uh, really enjoyable, particularly when you don't, you don't actually know anybody, because you see these same kind of patterns happening for people. You know, if you're kind of getting together, there's a bit of a jumble and a confusion and people not going not to do, somebody trying to organise something, making mistakes, fumbling around, getting it together. And then sort of moments of calm when everything seems to settle and people, oh yeah, quality of, of trust and confidence occurs and people feel relaxed. Um, yeah, the last, last one I went to was in, um, in Switzerland and there's a there are quite a large Thai community gathered together. It wasn't in the monastery, it was in a place about an hour's drive away. So they, they rented this big hall, about 200 people turned up. And it was obviously, it was one of the two days a year, the Wesak and the Katina, they're big days. And just noticing mostly, uh, there were, a lot of them were Thai women with uh, Western or, or Swiss husbands. Um, who'd kind of come along, were looking so slightly bemused, but okay with it all. <laughs> and just seeing how all this jumble of people, and then the times when everybody sort of focused, and did things like the chanting, the meditation, the circumambulations, and in that moment you could feel a whole difference coming over the room and a quality of, of unity occurring. You know, over these very different people, particularly people who come from, you know, quite a different culture, and somehow or the other managed to make their lives work in in Switzerland. Thailand and Switzerland are very different experiences, and yet making it work, and looking happy and relaxed, and feeling they belong to something, and in that moment of feeling you belong to something that's good, and trustworthy, and it's basically benevolent. It's on your side then uh, out of that sense of trust and benevolence and in the benevolence a certain sense of, of solidarity occurs, strength, strength occurs. So these are occasions when we can you know, get a, a sense of support and being strengthened and it's strength that's somewhat catalyzed by an external situation but it's not purely external because we can feel it in ourselves, we can feel uh, our values suddenly coming stronger, being highlighted, what we think is good and true becomes stronger and more highlighted and we take that away from us and the fact that that is not just not just internal, it's also external as other people share it. So this, how the, this, the uh, sasana, the Buddhist um, religion works, is both internal and external. The external supports the internal, the internal supports the external as we all gain some inspiration and clarity and strength and because of that we're able to hold ourselves and exude or radiate a quality of that calm confidence and that supports the external and the external is often held by by the sangha or by the ritual or by the occasion 
a sense of you know this is this is the occasion um, this is safe this is trustworthy it's nothing unwholesome going to happen and we can all gather together that supports the internal and that's the way that the, the thing develops and cultivates and it's important to recognize the internal and the external both uh, are required it's not purely a on your own up in your head kind of practice nor is it just a practice that's about external conventions and, and rituals and ceremonies but uh, you can't really cut one off you know if it's all just on your own it gets a bit bleak and theoretical but if it's all just out there it gets a bit superficial so it's how these two blend and merge and the results of that <clears throat> results of that I would say uh, I was thinking this, my, reflecting on this myself something I call a sense of inner strength and uh, not strength in an aggressive or harsh way but a sense of firmness and, and, uh, and so on that, that which enables us to, to, to bear, to continue, to keep going to have some resilience um, and some ability to bounce back from the things that life uh, dilemmas that life places us in being born, being sentient being in a a world with a lot of um, bad as well as good in it and so we've got to manage to to handle this and that inner strength I would say comes from qualities of um, uh, the ability to have love and warmth that is to have a sense that there is such a thing as, as my welfare and it's, it's important to be interested in one's own welfare one's own just state of well-being whatever one's doing whatever one has achieved in terms of position or status or whatever on that level that essentially the aim of the practice is to uh, realise a quality of well-being and this is really what our lives are about and as Buddhist practitioners getting a sense of that our own well-being is right up there not just a, uh, an aside but actually the, one of the main focuses is do you feel well with yourself do you feel at peace with yourself do you feel a sense of, of it's okay to wish yourself well and to make steps to take steps to make yourself feel well to look after yourself um, and that, that sense there's a sense of, of warmth we're not here to be right we're not here to be better we're not here to be superior we're here to feel good you know, um, and the other th- reason, you know, and when we recognise that in ourselves, and and we recognise that wish in others, and you see how actually, you know, in some ways it's not that difficult if you know if you know the right place to work from. It's very difficult to feel well if you're always trying to prove something, or if you need other people to tell you, you know, to to make you prove something or that you, other people would convince you of something or to feel you've got enough things, possessions before you feel well or you feel you've got enough this or that before you feel well feeling well is based upon something you do so feeling well is a sense of just innate well-being innate sense of being uh, respected worthy of, worthy of affection worthy of being here sense of self-worth and um, it's 
of course, was we can recognize, even in fairly sophisticated and wealthy, comparatively speaking, wealthy societies, people don't necessarily have much sense of worth. Um, it's not dependent upon, upon um, sophistication, technology or wealth. It's dependent on the sense of loving kindness towards oneself and receiving it from others, receiving a sense of esteem and care and respect. Mm. It's like food for the heart. If you don't get enough of this, then you're always trying to find it, you know, by doing something or proving something so that someone will like you for it. And this is one of the, the things that makes us all so, so um, agitated, restless. You know, am I likable? Uh, do other people like me? Am I okay here? Have I done well enough here? Does somebody dislike me? And when it all comes down to it, uh, when, it come, when we start to review this, we can probably begin to realise the only thing you can really... Um, Rest, be sure about, ultimately, the only thing that really counts at the end of the day is whether you like yourself. <laughs> you know, because that's the one you live with all the time. <laughs> and uh, that's the one you can get close to. You know. I mean, other people may like or dislike, or you, you think they like you, or you think they don't dislike you, but, or you think they this, that, or the other, or sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But essentially, if you don't continually like, respect, and love yourself, then no matter what anybody else does, it's not really going to mean very much. And if you do like and respect yourself, no matter what anybody else does, you'll be okay. <laughs> and you can, so this is, an, and if you are okay, then you have a certain fundamental strength, a certain sense of uh, confidence. With that, I suppose there's also the um, feeling of fundamental strength itself is that um, ability to, that which can keep us going. And there are kind, you know, ways in which people seek affirmation or things to make them more powerful. You can see how, how in this world, power is such an important thing. Political power, economic power. Um, you get nations vying for power, then people vying for power. Who can influence who? Who can? Who's a political power? You know, who can talk? Who can use rhetoric? who can have persuade others, who can take over. Physical power, who can be tough and strong? Who can, financial power, who can buy out who? Um, so there's this tremendous kind of power movement and people, if they haven't got much power, like to look like they have. So people like to drive powerful cars. If you just go into the shops, you need a sports car, drive 170 miles per hour just to go down to Tesco's. <laughs> or you have these things, these big uh, four-wheel drive buggies now, and they have a huge amount of these in, this, in America, called SUVs. And they're quite an issue because they gobble up so much petrol. 
And the main thing about these things is they're like, they're like moving fortresses. You know, and the idea is once you've got one of these, you're in your tank. You know, you can go anywhere, you can go up, up mountains, you can cross rivers. In fact, they say of the people who have these things, like nine, at least 90% never go off the main road. But still, it, you feel a bit stronger because you've got this big, bulky, heavy-duty machine with you. And then you get things like power dressing, where you dress, where you look tough. You know, you mean leather or chains or padded shoulders or looking mean and hard or even just make, making the face up, making the body look aggressive. So you see how this kind of power thing, uh, forming gangs and so on, is such a, uh, a feature. And once people start doing it, then other people, you know, well, you know, you've got to have your own power to, to withstand that. So the whole power issues just escalate as people compete and vie for power. And yet power is not the same as strength because if you have strength you don't really need to be showing power. You know, there's a sense in which uh, there's a, a quietness to strength, a confidence to strength, just like a, a, a body that's fit or a body that's healthy. The ability to function and the ability to sustain itself is what we really need. You know, we don't really need to um, have enormous amounts of physical power or uh, power over others if we had actually had authority over ourselves and this is so it's one of the ironies is that uh, you know there's this sense of the world being a fearful place or not having enough control um, and people seek to address that by having power rather than having authority over themselves which is the only thing that really gives you a sense of, of, of strength if you have authority over your own mind, then you, you know, I, I'm, only, I, I'm convinced by my own truth. I'm not persuaded by other things. I have my own truth. I have my own dignity. I have that. And that's something that can't be taken away from me. Then you have, then you have authority. You don't need power then. So there's, if you like, the ability to have loving kindness or to love and respect oneself, the ability to have one's strength. And I think trust is also a big part of that. Uh, fundamental trust that um, I'm okay. You know, I can manage. Uh, there's a ground. I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying his meditation practice, it was just like things had fallen away. It was like he'd it always before had some sense of having a firm basis of some calm or confidence and this had just disappeared and it was just like vertigo, you know, and not being anything to stand on. And uh, this can certainly happen in spiritual practice. Um, and certainly I've been through these times quite a few times myself. And the interesting thing is that just to be able to, to, to bear presence, to be present in that, when there's that feeling of life is falling away, you don't, you're uncertain, you don't know what the future is going to bring, you don't know if you can handle this, and just feeling that sense of the, the fear or the, the doubt coming up, and being able to bear with that, you gain a, a certain strength, a strength that's not based upon circumstances, a strength, strength that's based upon the ability to be mindful and aware, have awareness as your, as your refuge. 
and then there's a strength that comes out of that. Uh, so this is like basic trust. Um, and you can see how essential that is, because once we lose trust, then we start looking for power uh, um, outside ourselves, power in, um, influences and so on. We seek to become something. We seek to have something, to gain something, to get something. And then we're actually getting caught into a particular spiral of things that, because we lean upon them, we lose our own strength. And because those things we lean upon tend to fall away, we end up feeling more and more insecure. One of the other qualities of this uh, that seems to be essential to human beings is is joy and the ability to enjoy. And enjoyment, I would sense to myself, is the ability to, to empathize and participate in something and appreciate that. So enjoyment can be of various kinds, but for enjoyment for me means something where there's no particular aim, you don't have to get anything out of it, you're just being part of a process, being part of something, and feeling okay with that, feeling, take, uh, seeing the benefits or the goodness of that. And sometimes um, this, this feature goes out of our lives because our lives can be exceptionally um, functional on one level, so we have times and, and conditions and, and training that tells us to be effective and efficient and on time and get things done and make sure we're as good as. So you get this kind of you know, upbringing in a certain way. And unfortunately, when you get into the, the idea is, well, if you, once you do this, do it well enough, then you do that and then you have time to enjoy yourself. But right, actually, that'll be a little bit later because now we have to do this, but then once you've got this done, then you'll have some time to just enjoy yourself. <laughs> next, next year. <laughs> and so it goes on. Um, and although, you know, then if so maybe you are doing some work, and you think, okay, now's my day, my day off. Now, oh, I'm supposed to enjoy myself now, so what should I do to enjoy myself? Well do this, do that, go out and do something. Um, but actually, you know, the, the problem is that, that the, once we seek enjoyment through just through external events or doing something, we lose the real heart of it, which is to have that, that time when you feel light and free and you can just enjoy what's happening. So I remember, you know, travelling when I was travelling and walking around India, seeing children would just enjoy playing with a stick or a little piece of an old bit of rubber, you know, just because they could just fiddle around with it. The human mind is capable of having fun and and, see, and enjoying itself with most anything, really, if it has the opportunity. But the basis of it really is the mind's ability to be free and light, 
and not have to produce anything, not have to function, not have to make things work, or even make things have uh, have things make sense. And you can see that um, that is not just an an, ev- an event or an external thing. It means a whole cultivation of mind. And unfortunately, when you get into a lot of cultivation of mind, which gets so much about functionality, then this bit starts to get weak. So. Um, Certainly, I know when I was, um, you know, making making money, just about. <laughs> then I, I would go to go to work. I really didn't enjoy the job I was doing at all. It wasn't my cup of tea at all. But I was doing it just to make some money and get by. And I do that. And I work and work and work. And we think, oh goodness, you know, Friday night I'll be all right. Get the get my pay at the Friday night. But I was in such a so fed up and bored and irritated by Friday night that I get my wages and I blow it all by Sunday. <laughs> Just trying to kind of get out of the negative fed up state I was in on by Friday. So, so that by Monday I was, I was broke again and had to go back and so on. And it took quite a lot of, of severe discipline and renunciation to, to, to break out of that, that habit. You know. So what I eventually did was, that as soon as I got my money on Friday night, I just immediately rushed down to the post office and put most of it in the in the post office bank account, so that I couldn't do it, so that I couldn't blow it all on Saturday, when I started to get the depression, <laughs> which would come, <laughs> I'd get the depression Saturday morning, thinking, what what am I doing? What's the point of all this? Oh, you know, go out and drink something, or you know, try and just block, uh, go into oblivion somehow. To get to get over the pointlessness of what I was doing, because that's the uh, you know when you you when you're involved in a lot of functionality uh, that's not directed towards truth or well-being or confidence, it's just directed towards things you don't really you're not really involved with. You can feel like, well, what's the point of being alive? What am I doing here? And then that's very depressing. So naturally, then you have to one has to drown out that oppression, that depression with something, some oblivion seeking, which we can do in rather unskillful ways. Or some ways are more skillful than others, but the whole the whole sense of that, that searching for oblivion, um, I can certainly relate to that. You know, just somewhere I don't have to feel anything, think anything remember anything, just blot out into something, turn up the music, uh, whatever, you know, drown your sorrows in something. And as much as we can kind of tut-tut about it, it's a pretty basic part of what people do. And unless one isn't, one is getting some sense of enjoyment in one's life and in one's uh, um, practice, and in one's um, you know, companionship, then most of us will actually have to find some way of getting going to, into oblivion as a way of just recovering from or, or blotting out some of the the uh, the apparent pointlessness of our lives. So joy is a big part of of practice. Mm. Joy is also something that was very. <coughs> is the most um, fortunate way to where people meet each other and why we do meet each other. 
we don't meet each other primarily to do something or to prove something. If we do, there's something going wrong. Primarily, we meet people, want to be with people because of the sense of enjoyment, sharing energy, sharing time, playing, if you like, however you want to use that word, but talking, exchanging things, doing things together, going for a walk or whatever. Um, you know, it's sense of there's something joyful because um, we are, we're just doing something purely to appreciate the presence of another person or the, in the present moment. So these all, when you, when you, you see these are things that people seek, we will seek and do somehow or another. And uh, when you look at, uh, you know, Buddhist practice, I think it's very important to to make sure that Buddhist practice, your Buddhist practice, has these in it. It has basic trust, basic love, basic strength, basic joy in it. Uh, because those seem to be very fundamental um, things that we seek to to alleviate or to negate our suffering or to give us a sense of fulfilment. So if we come to Buddhist practice too much from the idea of... of um, something I've got to keep doing all the time, like a job, then the sense of joy goes out of it. Um, if the practice is something where I'm, always, I'm doing something because basically um, there's something wrong with me, I'm not good enough, so I've got to work hard to make sure that I get to be good, there's no real love in it. There's no real acceptance of that. Uh, there's no real trust there. And we can find actually that uh, Buddhist practice or meditation practice particularly gets affected by these same stains of, of lack of self-worth, lack of appreciation, lack of joy and lack of confidence in ourselves. I think the problem can be that it's rather like we start, we aim high, which is a nice idea, so you can get to some pretty, there's some pretty refined spheres and realms and, and uh, mind states and capacities that Buddhas have that we can be quite awed by and feel we should get. But it's rather like when you build a house, you generally don't start with the roof and build down. You, know, you see, start with the, the foundations and build up. And the foundations where you have the sewage and you put <laughs> the plumbing in and the and the, the unglamorous bits, you know, that we you, then you you get that you dig deep, you dig into the ground. You don't just you know you make sure it's really firmly bedded in the ground. Um, so I'd always you know try to emphasise that don't you shouldn't build from the roof down in your practice. Try to build from the ground up and really make sure the ground is firm ground, is good ground. It's ground you feel you can build upon. It's your ground. Mm. Yeah. What this means is just recognizing, first of all, you know who you are, trying to get a clearer sense of who you are, what it is to be a human being, you know, before you become a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, get a real sense of, and and, and try to look at this 
not just in all the events and incidents of your life, but sift through that and see what are the fundamental dreams, the fundamental wishes and inclinations, the fundamental suffering. Because I feel actually this is what the Buddha was doing in his own day and age. He was cutting through the complexities of the Vedic and Brahminical traditions to just try to get down to basics, like why do I suffer? Where is su- what's suffering about? How does it stop? Mm. So it's nothing to do with Indra or the gods or the world cycles or the correct rituals, just, just kind of real home stuff. Right? There is suffering and it's bound up with a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling of disability, a feeling of disempowerment, a feeling of can't do it, not good enough and all that. This is kind of gnawing uh, quality uh, that's going on in people. And how can we check that? How can we stop that? And the Buddha, through his own insights and struggles and pain and joy, also recognized that this suffering, uh, you know, which many people don't really even want to fully acknowledge or touch, or if they do touch it, think, oh, it's just me you know, I'm neurotic, or there's something wrong with me, or I'd be all right if I had one of those, or nobody else is like this. But <laughs> suffering is, is called a, no, a noble truth, and it's a unifying thing to, to acknowledge that there is this, uh, we all suffer. There is an aspect, there is an element of that in all of us. And a lot of our lives are just about strategies to keep us away from that, or pull us out of it. And the Buddha's own strength and uh, perspicacity was to say, well, rather than pulling, just trying to, you know, find ways to get out of this, what if I could just really try to understand it or feel into it, what it's about? Mm. And his own understanding was that this suffering that we experience, although there are many different layers of it, essentially, it's not basic. Essentially, it's, it's conditioned. Uh, it's something that's, that's added, or to put it very crudely, it's something that's conditioned. It's not, it's not an unconditioned truth, it's not an absolute truth. It's something that happens, or something that gets placed over or onto awareness. And so, through, it's through handling and holding and investigating that, that that very awareness itself becomes clearer. As you begin to recognize that the non-suffering comes through, through understanding suffering, not through getting away from it. <laughs> this layer of, of, of stress and uncertainty and incompleteness that makes us feel restless or hungry or confused or unhappy with ourselves is something that's added on to our minds, to our hearts and minds. And we can, if you like, drop through that or come through that to something more fundamental. So that the, the picture really is of, of primary, primary sense, primary purity or primary happiness or basic, basic clarity. And in this clarity rather like water 
you know, which is innately pure, there's this qu- that gets all kinds of stuff gets injected into it, or bits of rubbish get thrown into it, or gets, you know, uh, turgid. But basically, it's still it's still there. It's carrying a lot of stuff, but it basically is still there. So, if you like, that's that direction is is towards the unconditioned. In other words, it's towards not to adding more and more stuff on top of the, the basic confusion we have, but actually cleaning away or penetrating through it to get to something more fundamental, which we, which um, awareness or which sometimes the word Buddha is used to represent that, that knowingness. Awareness is a quality of knowing or wisdom. Buddha means awake. So the awakenedness. And again, we might think, oh, awakenedness means, you know, you get to this thing and then, you know, uh, that's somewhere else. You know, there's suffering and you go to these other places somewhere else. But, um, the, the Buddha's understanding is that right in the place where there is suffering, that is the place where there isn't any at the same time. Yeah. Or you might say that in, in practice, so I, I often have these little mantras or little themes of practice that I, I practice with for a year or a month or a period of time just to keep working around a particular theme. So one of the things I've been working with recently is whatever the, whatever the suffering in the moment, whether it's through feeling anxious or haven't done well enough or um, you know, uh, feeling tired or however it is, you know, slight or great, uh, clear or confused, silly or apparently convincing, but it's just, you know, silly sort of suffering, <laughs> getting upset about the colour of the carpet or something, <laughs> you know, something you shouldn't do, you should have grown out of that by now, or whether it's major suffering like about wars or pestilence or violence, or it's important suffering like about the state of the Sangha, or the things you cold dearly, or it's unimportant suffering like watching my plants get mealy bugs and die, um, you know, however it is, grand or small, noble or ignoble, silly or, or intelligent, there's that sense of the pang. You know, what is it that's aware of that pang? What is it that's aware of that hurts? What is it that's right there going, mm. Because right there, I come to a sense of this, what I call the earth-touching mudra, which is the Buddha's gesture of enlightenment, is when his fingers touch the ground. It's also called the repelling mara mudra. It's the gesture of right here. Mm. What's this? So, you know, a lot of the time I can recognize that that in that process of experiencing suffering, there's something, first of all, that says, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. You're not really suffering. You know, or you'll get over it, or it'll go away, don't worry about it. So that's the first kind of layer of trying to fudge it. Like. And then after recognizing that I am suffering, well, you shouldn't be suffering. You know, it's only, a, it's only mealy bugs on your plant. You know, it's nothing major. You shouldn't be suffering. There shouldn't be any stress here. So it's the next layer of kind of 
uh, deflection uh, or it doesn't you know and then well or the next one is well pull yourself together man get over it <laughs> snap out of it look on the bright side cheer up you know whatever get another one somebody will fix it for you life's like that all these kind of platitudes you come out with to try to avoid <laughs> this fact you know, and so, so sometimes you know one meditates with that feeling of pull yourself together. And so, recently, more recently, I've just been trying to recognise, you know, well, that that may be the case. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I won't. Yeah. So I could pull myself together and so forth. But what actually, before I do all that, before I get my thing going. What is it right now that knows this feels like sadness? This feels like anxiety. This feels like irritation. It's not fair. It shouldn't happen to me. This, it feels like that. Just, just a sense of really being with that which can apprehend suffering, however it is. You know, without doing anything about it, or without blaming anybody, or without blaming myself for being that way or without making some story out of it like you always are or, or life's like that or getting philosophical about it but just, just touching it and I find at that particular point the mind just sort of wakes up oh. and then there's this kind of an alignment a sense of strength comes up you know, it's just, it isn't really me being strong, it's just a natural quality of, well, that's that then. That's like that then. You know, you know uh, the senses are like this, the mind is like this, you know, the feelings are like this, it's like that now, it's like that now. You know, without making, you know, adding anything more to it, there's a kind of quietness where all that stops that busyness stops, that running around stops, that prevarication stops, that sense of should and shouldn't stops. There's a quietness and a steadiness that comes up. And then there's a feeling of, well, there's a lot, you know, this this system is really built for suffering, isn't it? (laughs) It's It's a sensitive thing. You know, I can suffer at the drop of a hat. (laughs) <laughs> you know, my mind has got a kind of radar on it and it can sweep around and find something you know, to feel a sense of you know, anxiety or worry or irritation or sadness about it there it is, there it is, you know, you can do that It's taken a long time to really recognise that as just a as just a system. It's not me. If you contemplate your own body, you sit and meditate. And you contemplate your own body. You realise that the body is really set up for suffering, isn't it? <laughs> you know, how long before you got a shift, itch, scratch, move, twitch? Rest, adjust, loosen, tighten, brace, support. 
think about something else going on. <laughs> Without anything, you know, in a warm room, nobody's bothering you, and no, even if you're not ill, you know, it's really set up for it. Hmm. No wonder, you know, we don't really, this teaching is a little bit depressing. But the, the knack of it is, is that, that if uh, the Buddha says that these, what are called the five aggregates, which roughly speaking means the body and the mind, you know, they are in themselves, they're innately subject, prone to stress and suffering of some kind or another. Pain, disappointment, sensitivity, being affected. Um, and that, and the, in Buddhism we don't really do anything about that apart from to recognize that's that then, that's that. And the knack of it is that the clearer that sense of knowing that's that becomes, then that which knows that's that, <laughs> that isn't suffering. That's, that's clear, that's strong. Yeah. That's fine. That's happy. It's free. It's happy. It's just there's a sense of being able to enjoy because there's, you recognise there's no tremendous urgency. You know, there's no because you, you know, whichever direction you go in, really, it's just like shifting the deck chairs around on the Titanic. <laughs> you know, you can make it this way or that way, but essentially it, it kind of boils down to different, as, different things are going to feel stress and suffering, and some things will get a bit of a break for a while, but there you go, you know. And so something you think, well, okay. You know, there isn't a big purpose, you know. There isn't a big, we'll get that done and then everything's being okay. So you get that sense of being able to find your own rest and energy, and just, well, I'll, I can be with this, I can manage this, and just learning how to, to uh, contemplate and release oneself from the suffering, or the stress, or that anxiety, or that dread of it, or that feeling of the unfairness of it, that why pick on me, you know? And once we can release ourselves from that, then there's a feeling of one's free to enjoy oneself. Hmm. And to offer um, kindness and support to this system that experiences confusion, stress, it really needs to be held. This is just a lovely thing to do. Seems that you know, if we want to do anything in our lives, you know, we want to do anything in our lives, then perhaps the most important thing to, to do is to bring forth that which is nourishing, kindly, you know, for ourselves and for others, to help us through, to help us along this, this path. And when you look at the, the life of the Buddha, it's very much like this. I mean, the Buddha, um, you know, after his enlightenment, he spent all these weeks standing around, sitting under trees, standing under trees. He wasn't into horticulture, you know, so, but he was just enjoying himself, standing around, sitting under a tree. You know. 
I always like to remember that as, as all of Buddhism, you know, when you boil it down, comes being able to sit under a tree and feel good about it without worrying about whether the tree's going to get sick or counting the number of ants or wondering what kind of tree it is or what's the point of life or maybe you should be doing something else right now rather than sitting under a tree wasting your time. But just being able to sit under a tree and feel, this is really okay. <laughs> You know, I'm not being lazy, I'm not shirking my duties, my job, you know. Uh, you know, that kind of driven sense we have, the harrowed sense that we get in our lives. And, you, you know, if, of course there was something that we could do that just through doing would take us out of suffering, then, yeah, let's do it. But what, what, what is it? You know. What do you do that takes you out? What do you? What can you do? You know, the doing is a much subtler thing. It's just cultivating the ground of trust, strength, loving kindness, and enjoyment, freedom. You know. And the rest of your doings, you want to make sure they can line up with that basic aim, because you get the priorities right. See what your your goal is. Then you find. Then you find how you're going to get there. You know, to that goal. Don't follow goals until you know where they're going. Mm. Don't follow the directions until you know where, they, where they're headed. Mm. And you get a sense of confidence in that. So the Buddha spent quite a bit, he was quite busy in some ways, occupied for the whole of his lifespan until he was 80 years old. He was kind of going around teaching, um, setting up the Sangha, listening to people's problems and complaints and stresses and so forth, and dealing with all that. And they say he only used to sleep a couple of hours a night. So that, that in some of these uh, commentaries, they say the Buddha had particular hours of the day when he would talk to monks, and hours of the day when he talked to nuns. Humans, and he'd go and talk to the devatas, the heavenly beings. He'd go and have a word with them on the celestial levels, and then he'd spend a couple of hours. Complete signlessness of mind, and then start the day reflecting on the heart of compassion. Yes, you know, spreading forth his awareness into the world, bringing yourself forth into the world with a feeling of, of confidence and endowing uh, love and concern for the welfare of other beings. So it's quite a, quite a routine, you know, 22-hour day, seven-day week. So you think, well, you know, I wonder if the Buddha ever thought, oh, 10 o'clock at night, I'd better go and see the Davis now. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, those Davis should never give you a rest. And then it's 6 o'clock in the morning, got to go and talk to the kings or go out for arms round, you know, fed up, never get a day off. Seem to be able to manage to do all this without, you know, feeling it was just a grim job. 
that he was doing and when he was going to be able to retire <laughs> from it all. So I like to, re- to remember this as a sign that uh, in his own subtle way the Buddha was quite occupied and busy in his own way but he wasn't, all of it was enjoyable. I, mean, I don't think he was you know, having a party but obviously there was a sense of just being able to manifest goodness manifest care, manifest wisdom, bring that forth, itself is a quality that you can enjoy. You can enjoy the flow of goodness and truth and compassion. Whether anybody else receives it or not is another thing because it's also important to recollect that you know, the Buddha wasn't a complete success <laughs> in the worldly sense. You know, there were many people who listened to his teachings who didn't get it at all. Uh, some of them argued with him, some of them plotted against him, some of them tried to kill him. So, the, you know, even the Buddha wasn't a success um, as a, in teaching Buddhism. <laughs> so what chance of the rest of us got? <laughs> this was his, it, was his t- it was his religion, you know, and he couldn't even get it across. So you think, well, actually, you know, maybe you don't do that bad after all. <laughs> But you can, you can recognize it's, it's not in the accomplishment is in being able to stay within your own energy, trust your own resources, trust that and know this is, you know, this is the goodness. This is the goodness of my life. This is not the I should be good of my life. This is the goodness. This is the, uh, you know, not the should be's, but this is the way it actually is. And that comes from that same sense of complete authenticity that knows this is suffering. There's no, I shouldn't, I should, why do I, how, it's just this is this. And it comes from that same place. The path uh, uh, comes from the same place as as, as suffering itself. And the origin and the, and the cessation comes from the same place because in the moment that you recognise sufferings like that, that there's the stopping, there's the arrest, there's the cessation of that fretting going on, doubting, feeling something's wrong with me. How can I get out of it? Why should this happen to me? I don't see the you know. It's the stopping of that. It's like this. Everybody suffers. Everything suffers. This is what. This is where we are. There's nothing, no shame in that. And when we when we suffer, when we get hurt, if we don't really get to that point, then the problems begin. The problems begin when I don't get to that point. I think you make me suffer. That's the beginning of the problem. I don't say, well, suffering feels like this. Say, I'm hurt. You made me suffer, so I'm angry with you. Oh. Yeah. Or what I did in the past makes me suffer, so I feel some guilt. Yeah. Or you might make me suffer in the future, so I get worried. <laughs> so you get these, then the whole complexities of our strategies start working, don't they? How I'm going to fend you off, how I'm going to get even with you, how I'm going to try and suppress that thought, how I'm going to protect myself from those possibilities and all that. And then the whole kind of 
busyness and, and, and uh, tangles of our lives get worked up. Because we haven't actually got to that point of accepting, touching, suffering as it is. And when you look at anything unskillful that you've done, times when you've blown up, got angry, upset, got violent, uh, been reckless in some way or another, and you come through that, you can recognise that right at the bottom of that, the reason, the primary condition for that was you, you suffered. You got hurt, you felt slighted, you felt made small, you felt fearful, you suffered and because of that, and you couldn't hold it, or you didn't hold it at that time, so there's the reactions of anger, of guilt, of fear, of worry, of you know, blaming goes on because we didn't actually get to that place and you know, suffering's like this. Mm. And more than just an intellectual or conceptual statement, really to, to be able to feel the process of it. You know, someone becomes curious about it, like how it affects your body. The tensing up or the contraction in the body the sinking in the stomach, the tightening in the jaw, the rising of the shoulders, the sweat, or whatever it is, however you feel it, that sense of stress. It's, oh, it's like that. And what happens in the heart when you, get, when you start to suffer in your heart, then these heart things that occur as perceptions, which you start to get ideas of, oh, you know, I can't trust him, it's a rotten world, people are like that, you get these kind of um, world views, perceptual world views comes up, or oh, I'm really like this, I'm really like that, you know, I should, I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. These are, these are the heart reactions to suffering. We get what are called uh, perceptions, or standard, which are kind of like images and caricatures of ourselves, the world, or other people. Mm. And these replace the moment-by-moment clarity of awareness. So we see each other and ourselves through this screen, through this filter of perceptions of ourselves and perceptions of others, which are always tainted. This is the person I mistrust, this is the person I feel frightened of, this is the person I feel doesn't like me, or whatever. And think, where is that person? That person is your suffering. The little bit of suffering that I haven't actually felt or really understood, so it's kind of, it's proliferated into the heart. This is my vulnerability, this is my, this is like that, suffering is like this. So when you begin to, uh, you know, contemplate these things, and you see the way that this, if suffering is not grasped, it spreads into the body, it spreads into the heart, and it affects the thinking, and it's like a virus. And if you don't catch it, it infects the whole system and you begin to live in a world that is both suffering and also not acknowledged as suffering. You know, as innately suffering. We think there's something I could do or there's something wrong or something wrong with me. The real problem is just not catching that quality closely enough and clearly enough. Suffering is like this. Mm. And then knowing suffering is like this. And when the knowing of suffering 
is in touch with that basic trust, basic strength, basic joy, basic love, very fundamental. So when you have difficulties with other people, it's always useful to recognize this other person suffers. Their difficulty, that in them which I find difficulty, difficult, is either my suffering or their suffering, or probably a bit of both. It's a bit of their pain and a bit of my pain. It's a bit of their sense of inadequacy and my sense of fear. It's a bit of her feeling of not getting enough and my feeling of being overwhelmed. You know, it's basically two forms of suffering, you know, meeting each other. We recognize this thing. Oh, you're suffering, aren't you? I'm suffering. Are you suffering? Yeah. Could we stop doing this? <laughs> Rather than, you know, fighting or clashing or blaming, could we just stop suffering right now? You know, wouldn't that be nice just to make a five minute pact on yeah, and I'd like you not to suffer. You know, I really would like that to happen to you, for you to not suffer, because it would make my life easier as well. <laughs> you know, that sense, which is nothing, you know, it's not some kind of altruistic theory, it's just pragmatic good sense. If you suffer less, you're going to be, you know, creating less poison. And if you suffer, you're bound to be creating some, some poison, and I'm, it's going to affect, affect the world. So that sense of, um, you know, uh, clarity from which loving-kindness becomes quite a natural thing. Mm. And to recognize that any of us, actually, if we, if we, you know, we can do that. We don't, we don't do it enough. We may do it sometimes, but we probably don't do it enough. But we have that capacity to do that, to know, to sense, what does suffering feel like? Just, just, as a, just as a process, just as an experience, we can do that, human beings. Oh. That's, we want to say, basic trust. If you can do that, you're all right. You have, you have capacity, if you can do that, you're all right. You, you're not nuts, you're not weird, you're not out of it, you can do that, you're all right. Uh, and as there's, for a Buddhist, essentially there's nothing else. That's the foundation. You don't need to, everything else will come from that naturally in its own due course. But that's the foundation bit. That's what your house is built on. Whether it's a bungalow or a mansion or a high-rise, high that's up to the builders. <laughs> but the foundation is the important thing to get there. Mm. 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 So I'll offer this for your reflection tonight.